You're listening to audio from Plank Row Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankrowharvest.org. It's good to be back. Uh, thank you guys for having me. Um, I want to start this morning just briefly just by, I guess, challenging you, like, pray for your pastor. Um, I guess I'm an outsider now, so uh, I have a little more freedom with the things I can say because I get to go home. Uh, but no, man, I hope you realize how, how good of a man you have leading this fellowship. And, uh, you know, I love Knoxville, but I miss him. Um, so pray for him. I know this is a difficult time. You know, we don't understand everything and why everything happens the way that it does, but we can trust that God's in control. Uh, but just lift him up. I know he's a guy that would give you the shirt off his back, and perhaps now it's time for you to do the same thing, you know, in return. So um, just just pray for him and know what a good man you have leading this place. Um, this morning we're going to be in, in Romans chapter 1, so if you want to turn your Bibles uh, there. If you know your Bible, uh, there's some people in here maybe that just got really nervous and anxious because uh, we're going to be in Romans 1, right? So... The thought process is, you know, I guess we're going to tackle some very controversial things today uh, if we're going to be in Romans 1, and I think that if, if, if that is what we were going to do, that would be very applicable to today. I mean, a lot of Romans 1 you see in the world, and, and I encourage you to study that on your own, uh, but that's not how we're going to approach this morning. So you can take a deep breath, not, not going to be a lot of controversy, uh, but we are going to be in Romans 1. And maybe this morning is just going to be a little bit different for you. But I want to start at the very beginning of the book of Romans. We're going to be in the first seven verses. And re really, truthfully, this morning we're going to spend a lot of time just in the first verse. And we'll kind of put a bow on it tonight um, with the remaining pieces of that passage. But this is a passage that I think a lot of people can, can look at and just easily dismiss it. Uh, more than likely, in your Bible, there's a heading that, that bears some resemblance to a greeting or, or something of that nature. That's what my Bible says. It says a greeting. And so the first seven verses are nothing but a greeting that opens this letter from Paul to the Romans. And so again, the thought can be that this is just a simple greeting. It doesn't really hold any significant value because um, Paul is basically just saying hello, right? So what's the point of the first seven verses? But I want to debunk that myth this morning or that belief that there, there's not any value here because it's just, just a greeting. And, and my hope is that we can see 2 Timothy 3, 16, and 17 come to life that tells us right, all scriptures breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, so that you may be complete, equipped for every good work, right? And so there's more going on here than just a greeting. And so to accomplish that goal, to look at this passage, we're going to examine the life of Paul. And, and more specifically, we're going to look at who Paul was and what his life mission was. And, and here's the main idea. The Word of God seems to indicate that our lives should echo the life of Paul. That, that's the main idea. The way that we live should be similar to the way that Paul lived. And in order for that to happen, we first got to understand who Paul was, what he was, and what his life purpose was. And so that, that's the task at hand today. All right? We're going to look at the life of Paul in these first seven verses, and we're going to answer those questions. Who was he? What was he? And what was his purpose? And then that should give us purpose when we leave today. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for, I thank you for this place. This is a special place with special people. And I just thank you for the time that we have to open the word this morning. 
and look at these first seven verses in Romans and, and see that it's more than a greeting, that it, it should be direction for our lives. And Lord, I just ask you to bless this time. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So let's look at those first seven verses in Romans. It starts, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and he was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. After reading that passage, short passage, just seven verses, I would ask you the question, you know, does anything unique stand out to you? And so anything strange going on? And, and of those of you, there's a lot of new faces here. Of those of you that know me, like I'm a school teacher. Um, so think about it grammatically. If you, if you look at those seven verses and look at it grammatically. Now, when I say that word grammatically, I don't want anybody to have bad flashbacks of freshman English or, or something of that nature. Um, I, I teach math now, so I'm, I'm, very, I'm a very black and white kind of guy. I don't like to live in the gray and in the English world, there seems to be a lot of gray. It makes me uncomfortable. gets me easily frustrated. Uh, so I didn't really like English class. Um, but if you look at this grammatically, you got seven verses, and there's only one period. Seven verses, only one period. That's, that's what you call a run-on sentence. It just goes on and on and on. And I think it's interesting to note, maybe this is something that you didn't know, in the original Greek, so if you had a Greek New Testament in front of you this morning, there would be no punctuation, no punctuation. And so when you think about the translators, they had a job of, of taking that Greek and saying, okay, we're, we want English people to read this. And so where do we put commas? Where do we put periods? We've got to figure out how this flows and what should we do. So, so maybe it's possible, maybe they missed a period somewhere, maybe they missed some kind of construction but that's not the point. The point is, what we have here is a run-on sentence. There's a lot going on. Paul's got a lot to say. And right, this is a greeting, right? But even in this greeting, Paul has a lot to say. And so if we begin to understand what Paul's saying, what Paul's message is, it's, it's possible that this is one of the most powerful run-on sentences that was ever written, right? Because there's so much going on. And, and we can, again, we can easily dismiss it as, hello, it's just a greeting, but there's more to it. And so we're going to look at those questions that I mentioned before. Who was Paul? What was Paul? And what was his purpose? The first is, well, who was Paul? And so it's easy to note here, if you're, if you're reading this greeting, it's easy to note Paul's introducing himself. After all, this is a letter. It's written to the Roman church, and it's understandable that Paul would want them to know who was writing the letter. And so it's also interesting, he didn't write it like we write it, right? Because look, what's the very first word? Paul. He's like, leave no doubt, this is from Paul. Now, if you wrote a letter to somebody and stuck it in the mail today, what do you do? Letter, 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 your name at the bottom, right? And maybe, perhaps, they knew what they were doing and we don't, because it doesn't, if you think about that, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why do I put my name at the very end? They've got to read the whole daggum letter to know who it's from. Paul's saying, this is from me. This is from me. So he wants them to know right at the gate that this letter is from him. 
And anytime we approach something like this, so you're looking at Romans, it's important to have some background information. In other words, what, what do we know or what should we know about Paul? So say you picked up Romans for the first time, and maybe that's you today. Maybe this is the first time you've ever looked at Romans. If you really want to understand what's being written, you've got to ask that question. Who is this Paul guy? Who is Paul? Because he's writing the letter. We can't move any further than the very first word, Paul. Well, what do I need to know about him? Because he's the one writing it. So what does Scripture tell us about Paul? Well, it tells us a lot of things. It tells us he was a very unique guy. He was a Jew. And at the same time, he was a Roman citizen. In Acts 22, verses 28 and 29, Paul declares this with his own mouth. He says to a Roman tribunal that he was a Roman citizen by birth. So Paul was born in the city of Tarsus, right? It's important to know who he was. Where was he from? He was born in the city of Tarsus. This was a city that was known as a free city in the Roman Empire. And so if you were born in Tarsus, you were automatically granted citizenship. Probably a bad analogy, but the only thing that I can think of is if you live in Mexico and you're pregnant and you drag yourself across the line and you have a baby, it's automatically a U.S. citizen, right? So if you're born, same idea. If you're born in Tarsus, you're automatically a Roman citizen. Now, maybe you're asking the question, why does that matter? What's the big deal? Well, that citizenship came with benefits. One of those was, you can't beat me without a proper trial, now, if they weren't a citizen, I guess they could. But if, if you're a Roman citizen, you can't beat me without a proper trial. You, you have to try me before the emperor instead of your little podunk community court right here. You've got to take me all the way to the emperor. And you can't, no matter what I do, you can't execute me by crucifixion. That, those were some of the benefits from this citizenship. So Paul recognized this, and he used this citizenship. He used these benefits at least a couple of times. If you track him on his missionary journeys, he used those benefits. If he was mistreated by the government, he'd call them out. He'd say, whoa, I'm a citizen. You can't do this to me. So Paul was a Roman citizen. But again, he also was a Jew. It's quite the combination. How, how does that work? How can you be a Roman citizen and a Jew? Well, he says earlier in Acts 22, very clearly, I'm a Jew. So you got this interesting combination going on. But Paul wasn't just a Jew. According to him, he was an extremely devout Jew who was dedicated to following the law. In the book of Philippians, he writes that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's saying, I'm the chief of all Jews. If, if anybody was doing things right, to the letter of the law, it was me. It tells us in Scripture that he studied under Gamaliel, who was arguably the most celebrated, celebrated rabbi of that time. So if, I want, if I'm a Jew and, and I want to study under a rabbi, if I could have my pick of who I could study under, it would be this guy, Gamaliel. And so that's who Paul studied under. So the point is, you're like, why are you telling me all this? Well, here's the point. Paul's got an impressive Jewish resume. He's a Roman citizen. He's also got this impressive Jewish resume. He was so devout that you know the story of Paul before he was Paul. When he was Saul, he's a persecutor of the church. I'm going to go drag all those Christians out and kill them because I'm going to be the best Jew that I can be. And so Paul's living that life. And then we read in Acts 9 that Paul encountered Jesus. He's a man that's focused on tormenting believers, and he's going to great lengths to do that. If we go over to Acts 9, let's go there because we got time. we got nothing better to do. Acts 9, it tells us, but Saul, 
He's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He goes to the high priest and he asks him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So he's basically saying, hey, give me papers and permission to go so that if he found any belonging to the way, if I can find any Christians, men or women, doesn't matter, I'm going to bring them bound to Jerusalem. I'm going to drag them out and drag them back so we can take care of them. And it says, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was, out, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And if you go down to verse 19 in the same chapter, Acts 9, it says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Now, that had to be interesting conversations going on there. Very interesting, tense moment because they knew who this guy was. But it says he was with them, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man? Is this not the same guy who made havoc in Jerusalem? of those who called upon his name was he not the same one persecuting all these christians and has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests but saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the jews who lived in damascus by proving that jesus was the christ so we got saul who's focused on tormenting believers and going to great lengths to do that and when paul meant when paul tells us that he was a devout jew he meant it but again, he, he's gone. He's got papers. I want to be legit. I want to be legal. But let me go down there so I can drag him out. And on his way, we're told, we just read, that he encounters Christ. He, essentially what happens is he gets knocked off his horse. He's blinded immediately. And he gets interrogated by Jesus. What are you doing? Why are you persecuting me? This is a remarkable event. And note, it's very important to note, this is not Paul having some hallucination that nobody else is privy to. He gets knocked off his horse, and we read very clearly that everybody else around him knew something was up. They heard the same thing he heard. They might not have saw what he saw, but they heard the same thing, and it was very clear to them, if I'm riding down the road with you, and you're on a horse, and I'm on a horse, and you fall off your horse, it's very clear for me to see. And it's also very clear for me to see that you're blind. <laughs> There's something going on here. This was not an event that could be denied. And then we fast forward to verse 19 and you see that Paul, all of a sudden saw, he's a changed man. Instead of persecuting Christians, it's the same guy who's now proclaiming that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. A complete 180 degree turn. Quite remarkable. And then we read in Acts 22, what more can we find out about Paul? We read in Acts 22 that Paul was a tent maker. He's working with Priscilla and Aquila. And guess what? They made tents too. So they're all working together, making tents. And again, you may be like, well, what's the big deal? Why does that matter? Well, why did he do it? He's serving as a missionary. He's working with Priscilla and Aquila to share the gospel. But while he's doing that, he's making tents. And if you go back to that time period, it was common for rabbis to also learn a trade. So this is not way out of the ordinary that Paul would be a tent maker. 
But it doesn't really matter that he's a tent maker. What matters is the purpose. And we're told in Scripture he would use the skill. So he would make tents in certain situations so he wasn't a burden to the church. And he also could avoid accusation that, well, he's just preaching so he can make money. No, I can make tents and take care of myself. I'm preaching the gospel because I was commanded to do so. So, so in answering this question, again, you're like, what's the big deal? Like, why, why do we need to know all this? Well, all of it, his ethnicity, his citizenship, his schooling, his encounter with Christ, and his trade, all of those things serve a purpose. All of them serve a purpose. And you're probably the one person sitting there right now going, are you serious? We've done, we've looked at one word, one word, and we're supposed to get through all these verses. Um, we're going to pick up the pace, but I want you to understand the purpose of, of what's going on here. All of those things, there's a plan in place. There's a plan in place. It's clear evidence of God's sovereign work and preparation in the life of Paul. God raised him up and equipped him to fulfill a specific mission. And take note of all those things that we mentioned. When was he being trained by Gamaliel? Probably a little boy. Like we're going back in time. And God is laying the foundation. Putting the wheels in motion. Because he knew what this man was going to be. So the second question we ask then is, well, if we know who Paul was, well, what was Paul? And so all this text is, has told us who Paul was. And now we got to ask, well, what was he? Well, Paul immediately references, so, so congratulations, we can move past Paul, right? So we're moving on in verse 1. We go, Paul, and then what's he tell us? A servant of Christ Jesus. So he immediately references, who was he? What was he? He immediately references himself as a servant of Christ. So the man that was formerly Saul and now is Paul, essentially he's got a new worldview. He's got a new perception of reality. He's a new creature in Christ and he's not his own. And the word that he uses here is servant. That's what he tells us, a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, depending on your translation, you may see the word slave. The Greek term here is the word doulos, which means, guess what? Slave. That's what it means. So when you see in your Bible a servant, it's kind of the, we're playing nice here not to make you uncomfortable. We're going to use this word instead of slave. But the Greek word is slave. And that's what it means, slave. One bound to another. But here's, here's the catch. Paul is using this Greek term in its Hebrew context. And that's very crucial to understand. So we've got to go all the way back to Exodus to understand what Paul's trying to get at. In the Hebrew culture, a slave was one who willingly commits himself to serve a master because of his love and respect for the master. And that can be seen in Exodus 21, 5 and 6. It says, But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. So you've got a slave that's got an opportunity to be a free man. And he says, No, I'm going to work for my master because I love my master. Because he treats me well, I respect him, and I love him. So it says, The master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost. And the master shall bore his ear with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Here's the point. Yes, Paul was a slave. He tells us, a slave of Christ Jesus. But Paul was a willing slave. He was a willing slave to the Lord. 
That seems pretty straightforward. But we're also told that Paul was a free man. So now that gets interesting, right? So Paul's a willing slave, but Paul is also a free man. Well, how, how can that work? That's what you call a paradox, right? It just means it's this statement that, that seems to be contradictory or go against common sense. Like you're sitting there saying, how can you tell me a guy can be a slave, but he can also be a free man? Well, Galatians 5.1 tells us, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do, su- do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So not only is Paul a slave, but he's also a free man. You say again, well, how is that possible? Well, on one hand, the Christian life is a perfect expression of love and free choice. And on the other hand, believers are purchased by Christ. They are bought with a price. That's what 1 Corinthians 6.20 tells us. You were bought with a price. So, so Paul declares right out the gate, right here in verse 1, he says, I'm a servant to the Lord. I'm a willing slave as a result of the price that Christ paid through his death on the cross to purchase my freedom from sin. So Paul is a free man who willingly submits himself to the Lord. And not only is he a slave, we keep going. He says, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. So Paul tells us that he's called to be an apostle. The Greek term here just means one who is sent. That's what apostle means. He's one who is sent. Now this title of, we could really dive into the weeds here. I'm going to try not to do that. But this title of apostle, and capital A apostle, right? It primarily refers to the 12 men that Christ chose to be his closest disciples, as well as Matthias, right? Who was the replacement for Judas. These men were chosen by Christ. And they were given authority to confirm their apostleship with miracles. And then later we see that Paul is recognized as a capital A apostle because he was chosen by Christ. It's Christ who knocked him off his horse on the Damascus Road. So just like these other apostles, Paul was also given the authority to confirm his apostleship with miracles. So when you see that capital A apostle, we're talking about these 12 men and Paul. Because they were given the authority to confirm that with miracles. They shared the gospel and were able to perform miracles. I don't know about you. I can't perform a miracle. I can't do it. Now, I can still be an apostle, a lowercase a apostle, because I'm sent out with a message. And that's the bigger point. That apostle means one who is sent. Paul is telling us, he's declaring, I was called to be sent. And that word called here is key. Because you have to understand, Paul was not sent out by his own design he wasn't sent out on his own design what was his design his design was to persecute christians but paul's life was completely changed and now he's being sent out and sent off by god and that's the point that paul repeatedly emphasizes that he was called by god he writes that in all of his letters he was a slave He's a willing slave, a free man who chose to give his life to the Lord. And he's called to be an apostle. He was sent with the message of the gospel. And that's where we get to the third question is, well, what was Paul's purpose? We clearly know who Paul was. We know what Paul was. And now he tells us his purpose. It says that as a servant of Christ, he's been called as an apostle for the purpose of what? For the purpose of sharing the gospel. 
and how he shares that to us is important. He tells us first that he's been set apart, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Here's the bigger point, and it's what Paul separated, it's what separated Paul from his Jewish counterparts that rejected Christ. Paul recognized that he did nothing to be chosen by God. It was strictly God's design and through God's grace and mercy. And when he uses that terminology, set apart, what it means is just to appoint. Paul says, listen, I've been appointed to a commission. I've been appointed to a purpose. And maybe this is, maybe this is the most important thing that I want you to hear this morning. It's interesting, not, again, not to give you English flashbacks, but it's interesting that this term set apart, it's used in the perfect tense. And what that means is, it's talking about a past completed action that's having ongoing present day results. So in other words, Paul says, as a result of an action, of a result of what Christ did on the cross for me, and his calling of me, a result of that, is I've been permanently appointed to something today and tomorrow and the day after. Paul's simply saying, look, I've got boundary markers for my life. Everything that I do now is to be done with the purpose of sharing the gospel. I've been set apart divinely by God to share the gospel. I didn't set myself apart. Right? That's what the Pharisees did. That's what I used to be. I was trying to set myself apart, but I haven't set myself apart. God has. I can't earn my righteousness. See, that's what the Pharisees thought. I've got I to do the law. I've got to do it perfect, and I can be good enough, and I can make it happen. And Paul's saying, that's the life I used to live. That's not the life I live now. I cannot earn my righteousness. It's Christ that earned it for me. And as a result of that, I now have this mission that I am compelled to fulfill. And that was the purpose, right? To share the gospel. What's the mission? Well, he ends verse 1 by saying, I'm set apart for what? Set apart for the gospel of God. That's the mission. Everything that Paul does flows through that filter. So we have to ask the question, well, well, what's the gospel? And so there's there's the little hook. Come, come back tonight and we'll really dive in. But for as I'm going to do my best impersonation of your pastor. For you slackers that aren't going to come, I'm going to give you a little bit right now. So, so what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the good news. That's what you've been told since you're a little kid, right? The gospel is the good news. That's the definition we've all heard before. But there's more. There's more to it. All right? The Greek word is euangelion. It doesn't mean good news. It, it does mean good news, but it's more than just good news. It's the good news of a conquering king. That's the message. That's what the gospel is. The good news of a conquering king. If you think about when a nation would go into battle and you win the battle, you emerge victorious, what happens? Well, here comes the parade through town. And then I, you pick a time period. It don't matter. We can go way back, parade through town. World War II, parade through town. Like, it doesn't matter. You go into battle... You emerge victorious. There's a parade through town. And what's shared? The good news. Our king won. Our kingdom won. 
That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Jesus came in the flesh. That's what Paul tells us as he continues on. You, and here's what he means. You could touch him and you could see him. He was real. That's the message. You could touch him. You could see him. He was real. Fully human and yet fully divine. He lived a sinless life that we couldn't live. He fulfilled the law. He suffered death on a cross. A once and for all sacrifice for our sin, for my sin, for yours, that fully paid our sin debt. Three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating death once and for all with the promise that all who place their trust in him and follow him would be granted eternal life with him as an inheritance. Life to the full as it was intended to be. Go back to the garden. Adam and Eve, we walked with God. That is the gospel. And Paul's saying, listen, that's my sole focus. It's my sole purpose to share this good news. I've been set apart to do it. Everything in my life revolves around it. So the question today, again, somebody's thinking it. What the heck does all that have to do with me? You're telling me all this about Paul, who he was, what he was, what his purpose was. What does that got to do with me? And the simple answer is, I really believe this book tells us that the life of every believer in some way is to parallel the life of Paul. And Paul said it best when he said, imitate me. Why? Because I'm imitating Christ. So the last question that we got to ask is, well, how, how does your life compare? If my life is called to, to look like Paul's, then how does my life compare First, have you had an encounter with Christ? That's where you got to start because that's what defined the life of Paul. Before your life can mirror the life of Paul in any way, you got to encounter Christ. All believers have, and it should mark a distinct change in who you are because you become a new creation. If you haven't had that encounter, then the question is, why not? Because he's patiently waiting for you to come to him. That's what Revelation 3.20 tells us. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. So he stands at the door waiting for you to recognize him as your Savior. And if you're here this morning and desire to know him, pray fervently that he would reveal himself to you. James 4.8 says, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So what are you waiting on? The second question embedded within that question of how does your life compare well how have you been prepared how have you been uniquely prepared if you're a believer in this room if you ask yourself that question have you have you stopped to look back and look, how has the hand of god been on my life all throughout my life to uniquely prepare me for what he's calling me to do think about the life of paul paul had educational skills he had multiple citizenships he had vocational skills that God provided him with so that he might be able to fulfill the mission that God had for him. And all of those wheels were put in motion way before he knocked him off his horse. In the same way, God's prepared you. What unique skills do you have that I don't? What circle do you run in that I don't? God's given you those unique skills and circumstances in your life to make you a valuable asset for what he's trying to do. And those wheels have been in motion 
prior to the day you were born. And you got to remember that God also uses the broken. And that's good news because we are all broken. <laughs> and God uses the broken. Many of us can fall into that trap of thinking that, well, these things that I've done in the past, like they disqualify me from service, right? Well, I mean, let's go down the list. We can go, we can go, um, we can go David, we can go Moses, we can go Rahab, we can go, I mean, you pick. Nothing could be further from the truth, right? For those that eagerly seek God, he can take evil and turn it into good. Go back in, in Genesis 50, story of Joseph, right? Sold into slavery, just beat down, prison for 12 years, eventually moves up the ranks. God blesses his life. He has a chance to bless his family that threw him into the pit, and they're trembling before him, thinking they're going to get killed. And Joseph looks at him and says, listen, what you meant for evil, God used for good. And he can do the same thing with your life. I challenge you this morning, look back, remember, how has God equipped you so that you can be useful? Then you ask the question, well, here, this is where we get a little personal. I can, I can get back on my horse, so to speak, and ride back to Knoxville. and Y'all can get mad at Dale. But what are, what, are you, what are you voluntarily enslaved to? The reality is that Scripture clearly outlines that you will be a slave. And that's a very controversial statement. That's something that we don't like to hear in our free country, but it's the truth. You're either going to be a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. So the question is, essentially what Paul is saying is, what's it going to be? What's it going to be? You're going to be a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness? Paul recognized himself as a servant of Christ. It was a servitude that Paul chose because of his great love and admiration for the master. And as a believer, we should also be voluntary enslaved to our king. And too often we choose to be enslaved by other things, hear me, even good things that can hinder our effectiveness in the kingdom. If you read Hebrews 12, 1, it tells us, look, you've got to be willing to cast aside every sin and weight, anything that holds us back from completing God's purpose in our lives. So what are you, what are you voluntarily enslaved to that's keeping you from being as effective as you can be in the kingdom? And then does your purpose align with God's? Are you set apart? Have boundaries been placed in your life so that everything you do serves the purpose of God? Is Christ's prior action in your life having present day ongoing results? And then I just want to end with Psalm 14.1. This is something that your pastor talks about a lot. Psalm 14.1, probably in your Bible, says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. And I think that your pastor is on to something, that that's not the best translation. And the argument can be made for that, because in, in this same chapter in Romans 1.19, it states, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. So in reality... The fool says in his heart, no God. It's not that he, that he genuinely believes that there is no God. No, because it says clearly, what can be known about God is plain to them because it's been shown to them. So it's not a genuine belief that there is no God. It's a denial to recognize that God because I want to do what I want to do. 
So instead of saying there is no God, he's saying, I do not choose you. No, no, God. It's a rejection of his call and ultimately his blessing. So are you answering God's call in your life with a yes or a no? And the reality of that is it's a choice that's going to have eternal consequences. Are you answering God's call in your life with a yes or a no? So, so all of that, I guess, you, I guess you get a little bit of the coach in me. That's the challenge. You know, Scripture tells me that my life is to emulate the life of Paul. Because the life of Paul was emulating the life of Christ. And so, does my life in any way mirror the life of Paul? Does my life in any way mirror the life of Christ? That's a genuine question, <laughs> you know, that only you can answer. All of us have to stand in front of the mirror, and ultimately you're going to stand in front of the judge and, and answer the, that question. But if you, don't know, if you don't know Jesus today, today's the day to know him. Today's the day that he wants you to know him. And if you do, then what are you doing with it? Because you've been called and you've been set apart just like Paul. Don't put Paul up on this pedestal. Paul is a unique guy with unique skills, but so are you. And God can use you just like he used Paul. But the question is, are we going to let him? Are we going to let him? Are we going to choose other things? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this place. And I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth and your honesty that you just lay bare before us. And Lord, I know that all of us in this room... <laughs> Me, as probably the chief among them, are, are massive failures at times, Lord. But I pray that, that we would place you first, even above what would be considered good things in this world. And that we would choose you and recognize the ways that you have blessed us, equipped us, and prepared us for where you have placed us. Lord, I pray that we would be, man, just good representatives of you. And that, that we would recognize that that you are first in all things and that we would live our life in a way that would bring glory and honor to your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.